Well, if you could choose one superpower, then what would it be? Superhuman strength? Invisibility? Telepathy? Teleportation? Uh, flight? That'd be fun. Time travel? Weather modification? Immortality? I mean, it, it's a fun icebreaker question. You might even want to have that discussion over dinner tonight. But when you're asked this, what would you say? Now, when I came up with, uh, when I went into Google and I Googled superpowers, there was this list and a whole lot more. But it didn't actually have the one that I really wanted, and that is the superpower to heal. And when I say heal, I mean truly heal. I don't mean that kind of thing where you get the, the shonky telly evangelist and they say, put your hand on the TV screen, just touch my hand, and then I will help you with that sore neck that you sometimes have. And if you give me some money, then that'll make it work even better. I'm not talking that kind of healing. I'm talking about the kind of healing you see when, well, you don't see it really. The kind of healing where you can walk into a hospital, hospital ward and imagine if you're the hospital chaplain and as you go around to each individual person, as you finish speaking with them, then immediately their patient, the patient is healed of their illness or their injury. Completely healed. So there they are, and you say, oh, can I pray for you? And you pray. And then they say, oh, my foot's better. And they just get up and walk out. Or, or they, they pull all of the tubes out because they're now completely healed. Imagine that. Every cancer or COVID patient, completely healed. Every disfigured limb that's happened because of a car accident or violence, restored. Every single disease eradicated. Forget teleportation, forget time travel. That is the superpower that I want. And we know it's a superpower that Jesus had. Jesus had this superpower of healing. And in Matthew chapter 8, we will see it in action. And we'll see a whole lot of other superpowers he has too, like exorcism and weather modification, to name but a few. And he's got other superpowers too because he's God. Not only did he modify the weather, he created the weather. And this is the side of Jesus that will be introduced as we look at Matthew chapter 8 in a moment. It's right after Jesus finished his famous Sermon on the Mount, which covered chapters 5, 6 and 7 and ended with these verses, saying that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Ouch. <laughs> Jesus has spoken to God's people, the last of the Old Testament Israelites, and he told them about how it is that they should respond to the coming of the ultimate king, to the coming of the Messiah. He's told them what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven and what it means to follow his kingdom and his teaching. And in the last chapter, he said, verse 24 from last week, he said, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. That is what people are so impressed about. Jesus is the real deal. He's the real thing. And with him, with Jesus, a new light has dawned. New light has dawned. That's what's happened. And so now we get today's chapter. Verse 1. We read that large crowds followed Jesus as he came down from the mountainside. Jesus comes down from the top of the mountain and lots of people follow him. Right now, they are literally physically following him as he comes down the mountain. 
And no doubt some of them would have also followed him as their king, as their Messiah, as their Lord. Maybe you did the same thing last week. You know, if you prayed that prayer that I said at the very, very end and you meant it, then you are one of Jesus' followers. All the things that he promised are now yours. And that is a wonderful thing. And if you're thinking, oh, I've come to the wrong week. I, I really wanted to be part of the action. Get online. Have a look at it. Uh, it's still there. You can go to our Vimeo page. Have a look at it and, and listen to the sermon and pray the prayer. Or you might be able to pray a similar prayer after tonight anyway. But the point is that Jesus has done that. He now walks down the hill from his mountaintop pulpit. And this happens. Verse 2. Suddenly a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Leprosy? Ugh, look out. Uh, this is a highly contagious skin disease without a cure. It's actually a neuro neurological disease that means that you can't feel your hands and your nerves. And Anyway, if you really want the gory details, go on and check it out in Wikipedia. But the worst thing of all about leprosy is that people with leprosy were ceremonially unclean. That's what the Old Testament said. It meant you couldn't hang out with believers and do church stuff with them. You couldn't approach God because you were unclean. The leper would have known this for sure. And Jesus certainly knew it. And so here he goes. This guy walks up to a Jewish leader and right there in front of him kneels down and, and calls him Lord. And then he says, if you're willing, you can heal me. It turns out that this leper knew exactly who Jesus was without any doubt. So what does Jesus do? Ah, run away, an unclean guy. I can't go anywhere near him. It'll wreck my ministry. Verse 3, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Now, it's amazing enough that Jesus was able to heal the leper fully, Immediately, instantly, right there. That's amazing. But how did he do it? We read that he reached out and touched him. And what would that have done to Jesus? That would have made Jesus unclean right there. Jesus was prepared to make that cost. But right there, Jesus healed him by touching him. He made himself unclean. Well, at least according to the rules he did, except for the fact that the leper was no longer a leper by the time Jesus had finished with him, which means that now that the leper is no longer ceremonially unclean, it means that Jesus obviously remained, uh, remained clean throughout the whole thing. It's just another way, really, that Jesus showed how he became like us and shared our humanity, even the humanity of a leper. And it now means that the leper could come into the presence of the Lord. He could be with other believers. He could come into the presence of God. No matter what happened to that man, he can now come into the presence of the Lord. And it's the same with us. No matter what you have done that makes you think that you cannot come into the presence of God. It might be a, a horrendous sin. Come to Jesus and kneel before him and say, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. You can forgive me. 
And you know what Jesus will say? He'll say to you the same thing he said to the leper. I'm willing. Well, no matter what it is that excluded you from the presence of the Lord, if you've done that, you're in his presence. And But what happens next is interesting. Verse 4, Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law for Moses, the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. Even though it would have been in front of a lot of people, Jesus says to him, listen, what I want you to do is I, I don't want you to make a big noise about it yet. I want you to go straight to the priest, show him that you're clean, and then after he has examined you, then the priest will know that you're clean and he'll give you a little certificate and you'll be able to wave it around in front of everybody and say, have a look at this. I was once unclean, but now I'm clean. And you know how it happened? It happened from Jesus. This will be a public testimony to everyone about the power of Jesus to cleanse people of their diseases. Because they'll rock on up to the temple and they'll say, hang on, what's he doing here? He, he's got leprosy. No, I've got a certificate. And he'll be cleansed. And because he's been cleansed, he'll be able to go there and be in their presence. And so the very law that excluded would now testify to Jesus. But this is only the first miraculous healing that we'll he read about in this chapter. Because we now read that Jesus headed back to what back in chapter 4 was called as the place where so many Gentiles live. It's this area of Capernaum and all around there, verse 5. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him. See, no sooner does he arrive in Capernaum than he's confronted by a Roman officer. Now, Roman officers were generally enemies of the Jews. And that's because they were the brutal face of Roman occupation in what we today call the Holy Land. It would be really strange for a Roman officer to plead with a Jew. It, it, it's supposed to be the other way around. In fact, you'd actually say it was almost demeaning for this Roman officer to do that. But it doesn't stop him coming to Jesus with his request. He says in verse 6, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralysed and in terrible pain. Uh, this guy is, is very sad because of this servant who is very sick. And so the Roman officer clearly knew that Jesus was his only hope. I don't know what else he tried, but he, whatever it was, he thought, I've got to go to the person I know who will fix it. And Jesus, even though it would involve him going into a Gentile's home, which was kind of as bad as touching a leper in some ways, Jesus said, verse 7, without blinking, I'll come and heal him straight away. But then this happens. Verse 8 and 9, the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, then they do it. it it's that simple. In other words, the Roman officer knew the power of Jesus' word. And so he just needed to say the word. And his word was powerful enough to do an amazing healing miracle. <laughs> 
This Roman officer knew more about Jesus' words than most of the people at the time did. Most of Jesus' followers didn't even get that. Many of Jesus' followers even today don't recognise the power of Jesus' word as that Roman officer did. How many times do we doubt the power of the word of God to really change lives? How many times do we doubt that telling someone the words of Jesus will actually bring eternal change to their lives? How many times do we, do we think, don't just say something, do something? But all the Roman officer wanted was a word from Jesus. And then this happened, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Jesus has just spent three chapters talking to Israel. He's told them that they're blessed if they truly follow Jesus as Lord and King. And then this this non-Jew comes along and he puts most of Israel to shame. Of all the people to recognise the true power of Jesus' word, of all people, a Roman officer? And so Jesus tells them that his faith is greater than any of the faith that he's seen in all of Israel. This Gentile had more faith than Israel. Pretty much nobody had this kind of faith amongst all of God's chosen people and it took a non-Jew to lead the way. And Jesus continues by saying, verse 11, and I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Non-Jews, non-Israelites will come from everywhere on the planet and they will have a meal? You don't do that. Non-Jews don't meet with Jews and they're going to be in the banquet with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the great fathers of the faith. And they and, and, and we will eat with them in the feast of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, how good are wedding receptions? It's been a while since we've had one. It's been a while since we've had even a cup of tea and a coffee at a cafe. But you know what it's like when you have those massive banquets, those special events in your life, whatever they are, when you've got choice food and drink and company and laughter and dancing and so much joy. That's what Gentiles will be part of. Gentiles like us. Even the Roman officer. Even the Scottish descendant who lives in Jamboree. But not all Gentiles will be there for the kingdom meal. And not all Israelites, of course. Verse 12. Jesus said, many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is just what he was saying before in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who is an Israelite by by descent will be seated around the banquet of heaven. You can't be at the banquet of heaven if you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, I... I think that makes sense, doesn't it? A person can't reject Jesus and be in heaven. A 
That's impossible. It can't work that way, and it doesn't. And what's more, if you're not in the kingdom of heaven, then Jesus says that you're in the kingdom of hell, in darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. These words about hell are spoken by Jesus. Don't let anyone say that Jesus is just about lambs and hugging and Hollywood smiles. Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the New Testament. Jesus spoke about hell because he knew how real it is. And he spoke about hell because he wanted to warn people to do everything possible to avoid it. You see, it's not a choice between the nice kingdom of heaven and a nice kingdom of something else. It's a choice between heaven and hell. And this comes from the very voice of Jesus. Take this as a warning. You can't just say, yeah, nah, when it comes to heaven and hell. If you reject Jesus, you're going to hell. I didn't make this stuff up. It comes from the word of Jesus. So make sure you make this decision now and make sure you do what the Roman officer did. Believe in the powerful word of Jesus and come to him as your king. Well, then verse 13 comes along and Jesus says to the Roman officer, look, go home. Because you believed, it's happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. Mic drop. Right there. Jesus does the job with his word. It's that simple. Belief brings healing. Easy. But then Jesus visits the home of someone he's much closer to. Verse 14, when Jesus arrived at Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. What that means in New Testament times is she's close to death. It's not like you could just have a couple of Panadol and sleep it out. It was usually a sign that death was close. And in a beautifully brief account, there's just two verses for this whole thing. Verse 15 says, But when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her. Then she got up and prepared a meal for him. Fever. Fixed. The woman's fever was fixed. And immediately she jumped up and started to prepare a meal for them, as you'd expect. In the last couple of weeks, I've been enjoying watching a streaming series called The Chosen. Uh, It's a dramatisation of the life of Jesus. Um, It uses a fair bit of poetic licence, so you need to to watch it with discernment. But I think it's a very powerful program in many ways. Uh, I mention this because as I was preparing this sermon, I, I, I thought of where this event is portrayed in the drama. Jesus goes and he's there with Peter's mother-in-law and she is there and she's semi-conscious. She's sort of having hallucinations and she, she's, she's delirious and you, and you can see it is very, very serious. And then Jesus touches her and immediately it's like she, she wakes up. And she looks around and says, what, has someone got you something to eat? She jumps out of bed, goes straight to the kitchen. It's the coolest thing. I I, I like it how creative people will take just 
two verses and, and put a little bit of flesh on them. But, but it's got to be something like that, mustn't it? That is how quickly Jesus acts when the woman's fever is fixed. It's the, a beautiful picture of the simple power of Jesus to heal. But Jesus doesn't stop there. After that, immediately we see other things happen. A whole lot more. Verse 16, it's a sort of a summary section. We read that that evening many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. He cast out the evil spirits with a simple command, literally by a word. And he healed all the sick. That is the extraordinary power of Jesus' word. His word has extraordinary power. And all of this is consistent with what the Old Testament taught about what the Messiah would be like. We're supposed to be joining the dots right here as we read it. And so we read that the servant of the Lord, that's who Jesus is, he would do just this, verse 17. This fulfilled the Lord of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who said, he took our sicknesses and removed our diseases. If you knew the word of the Lord and you're reading Matthew's gospel, you'd think, ah, he's telling us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's telling us that he's the servant of the Lord. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. And he's doing the very thing that was said in Isaiah 53.4. No, that's Isaiah 53.6, which is two verses afterwards. But Isaiah 53.5 in the middle says straight after this, he says, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. Uh, this is the bit. And if you knew Isaiah 53, you'd say, ah, so that's coming, right? Yes, of course it's coming. You'd know that the same servant of the Lord who would heal sicknesses and diseases would be the same servant of the Lord who would pierced, be pierced and crushed for our sins. Anyway, no surprise, Jesus is gaining lots of popularity. And as he heals people, he, he brought light to the dark land. And that raised a lot of attention. So verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross the other side of the lake. To cross to the other side of the lake. They're kind of at the, the top left bit of Lake Galilee, sort of up there. And Jesus is saying, I want to go across to the other side of the lake, uh, to the bit that is thoroughly Gentile, totally pagan. Let's get over there. Let's go over there. And as he's about to do that, we read in verse 19 that one of the teachers of religious law said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And that's good, isn't it? Well, Jesus came back to him, snap. He said, well, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Jesus tells this man that basically the life that follows Jesus is not simple and stable and domesticated. Jesus is not the kind of guy who's going to put down roots and settle down. He's basically a travelling preacher. And for Jesus, the road is his home. The road is home for Jesus. Life is short and Jesus just needs to keep preaching. But if you didn't notice, uh, you might not have seen that Jesus called himself something there. He actually called himself the Son of Man. Did you see that? What does that mean? Well, in a way, it's just a, kind of a way of talking about yourself. You know, son of a human, you know, child of a human. 
Yeah, fair enough. But it's much, much more than that. Jesus often talked about himself as the son of man. And it's because he wanted them to join the dots with somewhere else in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, very famous bit. We read in verses 13 and 14 that as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a, here it is, son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, the ancient of days, and he was led into his presence. And he was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that every, so the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. This is important. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now, hopefully at that point, as the teacher of the religious law heard these things, he probably, hopefully thought, oh my goodness, I am talking to the son of man. We are in the last days. The things of Daniel are happening right now, right here. And he would have understood, of course, that following Jesus is important and it's urgent. But the point is that following Jesus is urgent and very important, which makes sense for the next person who pops up, verse 21, where another disciple said, Lord, first, let me return home and bury my father. It seems reasonable, wouldn't you think? Um, and some people say, oh, you know, I need to stay at home until my father eventually passes away, you know, in a couple of decades time or whatever. Uh, don't think it's talking about that. I, I, I think it's supposed to be pretty shocking. And Jesus said, follow me now. Let the, literally, let the dead bury their own dead. Let the dead, you know, it sounds uncaring, doesn't it? But the place is on fire. You know, when, when there's an urgency, when the time is now and the Son of Man is here and the, the, the light is dawning and you're in that moment, it's like, get on with it. Don't stuff around. Follow Jesus. Do it now. And so Jesus goes. He gets into the boat and he starts across the lake with the disciples, heading off towards the heart of Gentile country, ready to be there with the Gentiles, going to preach to the Gentiles. And as they head across the lake, this happens. Verse 24, suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. It's not a little storm. It is a fierce storm. And it hits the sleeping Jesus. I don't know how you'd feel if, this little boat was rocking and you're thinking we're going to drown and well what would you do well the disciples woke him up they woke him up and said lord save us we're going to drown it sounds serious but it's what happens isn't it i mean you know you go out on a lake sometimes i mean lakes really well they can get pretty violent there on the sea of galilee and when it hits hard you're not thinking about what you're going to have for, for breakfast tomorrow. You're, you're thinking, am I going to have breakfast tomorrow? <laughs> you're thinking, we're going to drown. So what, what does it mean? Well, it's interesting because in his commentary, Peter Bolt tells us that it should remind us of Jonah. 
I don't know if you've uh, thought about it that way before. I don't think I quite joined the dots like this before. And when I did this week, I thought, oh, I like, what he, I like where he's coming from. Let me, let me see if I can show it to you. Because I think here the storm and the boat reminds us of Jonah. So here, here's how it works, okay? Just get your head around this. Jonah and Jesus were on a mission to whom? To the Gentiles, okay? And what did they have to go and tell them to do? Repent, Right? Jonah wasn't so keen. What did he do? He tried to run away. And how did he run away? In a boat. And he's in a boat. And what happens? There's a horrible storm. And what's he doing in the storm? Sleeping. And they go and wake him up. And they say, what's the deal, mate? Your God, it's, you know, he, he's causing this stuff to happen. What are you going to do about it? In both stories, the man of God was sleeping. In both stories, the people on the boat thought they'd die. And in both stories, the man of God is woken up from his sleep. And how did Jonah react? He said, ah, yeah, that's not good. Chuck me over. And so he did. And then he ended up in a big fish. And, well, you know the rest of the story. But what did Jesus say? There is a parallel, but then this is just a little bit different. This is where it breaks. He says, why are you afraid? What are you scared of? You have so little faith. Then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. And suddenly there was a great calm. That's how you do it. If you've got superpowers that control weather, you just say it. And it happens. And it was pretty impressive. Verse 27, the disciples were amazed. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They just went, oh. and I would too, wouldn't you? If you reckon you've got a bit of it in you, why don't you head down to Blowhole Point one day when, it, when the, it's really a huge swell and the blowhole's shooting up into the sky and you're thinking, whoa, this is awesome. And then you think, huh. Let's see how this goes. Stop it. Be quiet. Dead. Give it a go. Tell me how you go, hey? Post it on Instagram and let me, let me just tag me, hey? No chance of it. This is why they say, who is this man? They were stunned by it, and rightly so. And what's the answer? Well, we're not told. We're not told who this man is. But, you know, if you had a bit of an idea of the Old Testament, and his disciples would have, they probably might have had this come to mind. They, they, like us, they said the Psalms over and over again, and they got to know them pretty well. That's why we have a Psalm at the start of each church service. What's this one say? Psalm 89, 89. O Lord God of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts, where is there anyone as mighty as you, O Lord? You're entirely faithful. You rule the oceans. You subdue their storm-tossed waves. Join the dots. What do you get? Jesus is God. He's God. All these miracles have a meaning. They point to Jesus as Messiah. They point to Jesus as God. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a great teacher. He's the maker of a universe. He's made the universe because he's God himself. 
Nobody can have control over the wind and the waves like Jesus. Nobody ever has and nobody can. And that is because Jesus is God. Well, the final bit of the chapter happens as they arrive in Gentile territory, in pagan land, fully pagan land. Verse 28, we read, When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake, in the region of the Gadarenes, two men who were possessed by demons met him. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through that area. And they began screaming at him. Why are you interfering with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? It's pretty intense, isn't it? It Escalated quickly, as they say. Jesus is there in this pagan, non-Jewish land, right? The Gentile land. That's where he is. Demon-possessed men pop out. And what do they call him? These Gentile pagans call him the son of God. That's weird. How would they know that? And they know more about him too because they expect him to torture demons. I mean, Jesus is just some bloke who's come out of a, out of a boat, walked up on the beach. And they call him the son of God and they know that he's going to torture demons and they know that there is an appointed time for this to happen. Are you coming to torture us before God's appointed time? How could they know all this stuff? Not even the disciples had this worked out yet. How could they do that? Well, clearly it's a spiritual thing. And that is because the men were possessed by evil spirits. And these evil spirits knew exactly who Jesus was and what he came to do. And that is he came to destroy evil. And so they are in the firing line. You bet they are. They don't want to be destroyed. Of course, who does? They're smart evil spirits. They say, "Uh, plan B, do you reckon? And so they say in verse 30 and 31, um, because we read that there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the distance. So they they beg Jesus, uh, plan B, if you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs over there. Can you go over there? Can Jesus do it? Yes, he can. Verse 32, he says, all right, go. (laughs) Jesus commanded them. And the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs. And the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Uh, Can you imagine what they must have been like? The sound of the pigs. The sound of them racing along the ground and then jumping over and then into the hillside and then down into the lake and then the sound of them drowning and... I don't know how many there were. Were there 10? Were there 100? Were there 1,000? A heck of a lot, no doubt. What's going on right there? Well, it is an extraordinary thing. And partly because the sea was a place of evil. Now, this is an important little thing just to get... If you didn't know this, it doesn't matter. But let me just fill you in on a little, little helpful nerdy thing. You see, they, they considered that the sea was where evil was. So Jesus is trying to go across in the boat, across the sea, into Gentile land, so he can tell them about how he is God and how they need to repent. And what happens? The evil of the sea comes up and brings with the waves and the wind, and then Jesus says, stop, 
and they do. And then Jesus heads over there and he gets all the pigs and you know into the pigs and then down. And where do they go? Into the sea. They go to the place of evil. That's how they saw things right there in terms of spiritual stuff. So how did the herdsmen of the pigs react? Oh, I'm, I'm so happy that those two men who were troubled by this are now free of their distress. Well, we read verse 33 that the herdsmen fled. They, they ran away to the nearby town, telling everyone what happened to the demon-possessed men. Do you think they were excited? Do you think they were happy? Do you think the town was, hooray, we've now got this man who has such amazing power over these two men who we knew were so deeply troubled? Well, verse 34 says the opposite. The entire town came out to meet Jesus, but they begged him, go away, leave us alone. Can you believe it? They saw Jesus' power over evil. They saw Jesus' power over, over, the, over the whole force of nature. It must have been clear to them that they were in the very presence of God. Surely. There they were in the presence of God. What did they do? They rejected him. They rejected him. How could anyone possibly turn God away? Go away, God. How could possibly anyone reject Jesus? Go away, Jesus. How could that ever happen? What happens all the time? Maybe that's what you've done. You know Jesus is Lord, as clear as the nose on my face. But you say, "Uh, not now, or maybe later, or I don't know, never. How could you do that? See, the same powerful word that healed the Roman official's servant is the same powerful word that we've heard here today in the Bible, right now. You, through this live stream. And the same word that Jesus used to calm the storm and the same word he used to cast out the demons is the same word that invites us to be in the banquet of the kingdom of heaven. You have no excuse. You have heard the word of Jesus. And if you reject him, he will reject you. And to use his words, you will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus had superpowers. And in fact, as the one who created the universe just by speaking words, he has every superpower. In fact, you could say he invented superpowers. You name it, he's got it. And how did he use them? Well, with such great power came such great responsibility. He used his powers to heal people so that they would know that he's the servant of the Lord. He used his powers to heal and to save. And as the servant of the Lord, he came to suffer and die so that we might be forgiven. So that we might be reconciled with God. 
so that we might be brought into the kingdom of heaven to the glorious heavenly banquet. Tonight you have met Jesus in his word. And tonight you need to make a choice. Will you follow him like the crowds in Capernaum? Or will you reject him like the crowds in the Gadarenes? One day you will be judged according to your choice. Will you follow Jesus? Or will you reject him? Will you accept his loving rule and the joy of life in the kingdom of heaven? Or will you experience his judgment and punishment in hell? Who is this man to you?